So uh, what we're talking about here is spiritual warfare. I'd like to have you turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. It's about time I get back to the Bible, right? That's in Lincoln, Nebraska, my, my old home state. Ephesians 6. Ephesians is a book that was written as a circulatory letter in some of the earliest manuscripts in Ephesus was not in the manuscripts. There was a blank, as if it was to be filled in by the next church that received the letter. And there is in Colossians an indication of the fact that there were circulating letters coming from Laodicea. Perhaps it was a reference to uh, this book right here called uh, Ephesus, uh, or Ephesians, to the Ephesians. Now, this book, a circulating letter, to the church in general, is marked by the fact that it is a general letter, doesn't have many personal references. Quite different from Philippians, or Colossians, or Philemon. Because it's a general letter, because it's written about A.D. 60, and it's addressed to people of the church age, it's strictly a church age type book, recognizing that the church is a mystery, a fresh creation of God, until Israel's restored again. You don't buy that, just listen to the rest of this anyhow, okay? But it is a circulating letter. And it is written to us, to the churches of Asia Minor, really. And uh, we, as uh, Gentiles, perhaps there are some Jewish people here, it is written to us who are members of the body of Christ. The first three chapters have to do with our position in Christ. Absolutely perfect position procured by the blood of Christ and ours because we're in union with Christ. Having trusted him. You know some of the basic scriptures from Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, some very famous ones. But we'll avoid uh, going through all of that and just come to the chapter 4, verse 1. Have you noticed what it says in chapter 4, verse 1? You walk into the scale room, and you see this big balance beam. It weighs a standard weight against an unknown weight. The standard weight is your position in Christ, your calling. You notice it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, let your walk be of equal weight with your calling. Uh, you don't see that be of equal weight there, but that's the, the indication of the Greek word. You're to match them up. The standard is your position in Christ. Now your practice is supposed to be. The calling is supposed to determine your conduct. And what you have in Christ determines how you walk with Christ. Your wealth and your walk. The last thing this book ends up with, then, is your responsibility. You're to walk in unity, in holiness, righteousness. To walk in love, walk in the Spirit. The last thing, you are to war. You are to war in the armor of God. This is for the church. The church has largely neglected this. It's given lip service to the area of angelology and demonology, but it doesn't make any real connection. There's what some people call the excluded middle. Yes, God is up there and angels are up there, and we're down here. But there's no connection in between. As if the spirit world didn't impinge upon the world of reality in which we live. And that law of the excluded middle has made us either mystics or materialists. 
And we have to be balanced in this. A Christian worldview takes into account the fact that there's God and angels, demons too, and the fact that we are made of dust of the earth and we walk the earth and we have our problems with our present human existence in body and spirit. We not only have the world around us, which Carl Sagan can look at, but we also have the world above us, which Carl Sagan can't see and wouldn't see. And now the New Age people don't recognize this real. For the New Age people say, it's all within us. Shirley MacLean stands on the sands of the seashore and says, Oh, how wonderful it is, this creation of mine. I am God. She's out on a limb, and God is sawing it off. <laughs> she doesn't know what she's talking about. Both she and Carl Sagan, unless they turn to the Lord, will have to face the reality of God, the Creator, who is transcendent, far above his creation, and imminent, involved in his creation. And angels are sent as ministering spirits to minister to us who shall be heirs of salvation. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of the evil nature, angels. In a recent poll, well, by this time it's not so recent, I think it was about 10 years ago, 1981, in 14 nations, by a Catholic group and, a, and a, um, uh, the Gallup poll, findings are taken here, and I'll give you the report of some of them. Do you believe in the devil? Northern Ireland, yes, 66%. No, 22%. 12% didn't know. United States, 66%. No, 28%. Listen to the change in figures. Italy, 30%, yes. Stronghold to Roman Catholicism, only 30% believed in uh, the devil. 55% no. Great Britain, 30% yes, 60% no. I uh, met somebody called Olsen. How about, uh, oh, we have Finland and Norway. I didn't recognize how she, oh, here's Sweden. Oh, did you spell your name with an S-O-N or S-E-N? O-N, that's Sweden. Way down at the bottom of the list here. 12% believe in the devil. 77% no. Denmark's right in their same area. For you Germans, <laughs> yeah. West Deutschland. Um, 18% yes, 70% no. And these people are high in the level of socialism, communism, and spiritism. They don't believe in a personal devil. Another uh, CTI, or Christianity Today, um, investigation some time ago, asked the people in the United States, you believe in the devil, yes. Is the devil a personal being? 34% yes. 36% an impersonal being. So half of those who said, yes, I believe in the devil, didn't think he was a person. What a great disadvantage. What a great ignorance. We do not win out of ignorance. The devil does. He's got us duped. He's either all myth are almighty, and we need to have a biblical balance. So let's take a look at this matter. 
Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, and usually, an important thing is saved to the last to give perspective. Finally, be strong, literally be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not, is not against flesh and blood. That's metonymy for humanity. But against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you were able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of the hope or the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. We need to consider a few things here. Let's first of all, Consider the reality of spiritual warfare. First thing we need to consider, the enemy's personnel. Satan himself is a reality. We find him in Genesis 3 as the serpent who talks. No wonder the Indians speak about a liar as a forked tongue. Because, just like the serpent... And I think there is some connection there. <laughs> Somebody says, well, how can an animal talk? Well, the enemy can make him talk. God made a donkey talk. Somebody said, uh, well, uh, I don't know about that. I remember Dr. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, saying, not only could it make him talk, he could, if he wanted to, make him sing the Hallelujah Chorus in all parts. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 28 presents Satan as a cherub, a cherub, a high-ranking angel. Please don't call your children cherubs. They're rather grotesque when they're expressed or uh, when they are described in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 14 speaks about Hillel, the shining one who defaulted. Job 1 and 2. Job went through a horrible experience. Not only did he have boils, he had friends. <laughs> I could put up with the boils. It's friends that get to you because they get at your mind. They get at your emotions. Miserable comforters. But Job did not realize what was behind the scene because through the whole story of Job, we don't hear Satan mentioned once. You say, how about chapters 1 and 2? I think that was a prologue written after the story because he doesn't enter into the picture whatsoever through chapters, no, chapters 3 through the end of the book. But the whole story of Job, his suffering, his difficulty, was meant to teach Job and us 
that even though we don't understand what's going on, we need to trust God. The better part of wisdom is to trust God, even though you can't figure it out. Read Job again. It was one of the first books written, and it's still one of the most appropriate ones. It's not why do people suffer. That's not the question. The question is, will you trust God, even though you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes? Then afterwards, chapters 1 and 2, God let him in on the fact that this was a battle between God and Satan. God initiated it. Satan, have you noticed my man Job? <laughs> He's an upright man, isn't he? Oh, I tell you, he doesn't trust you for nothing. You're good to him. Take away his goods, and he'll curse you. You may take away his goods, but don't you dare touch his person. So he lost his goods and his family by God's permission. That's hard to understand, isn't it? But uh, suppose his family were saved people. They'd go to be with the Lord, right? At the end of the story, he had just as many sons and daughters. Still had just one wife. She was enough. <laughs> Remember during the story, she said, why don't you curse God and die? He said, you're talking like you're talking like one of the strange women, one of the unlearned women. I think she was much more mellow afterwards. Second time, God said, um, have you noticed my man Job? He didn't do what you say he did. Well, you're good to him. Touch his skin, and he'll really curse you. All right, you may touch his body, but you may not touch his life. Limitation, permission with limitation, boils. He had it, scraping himself with a pot shirt on a pile of refuse outside the city. He was miserable. But he said, though he slay me, yet while I trust him. The problem with Job is he... He said, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. It wasn't a question of deserving. It's a question of what was God doing? Can I trust him? Job's sin was not that he was an unrighteous man, but that he accused God of being harsh and far away, inconsiderate, and Job could do better in running the universe. <laughs> God got back to him, didn't he? When Job ended up, he ended up with a hand over his mouth and joy in his heart. <laughs> he stopped accusing God, started uh, rejoicing in God. He got his goods back, double. He got his children back. Now he had double of them, too. The first bunch in heaven, the next bunch on earth. Still one wife. <laughs> Only one wife will soon be passed. <laughs> I spent too much time on that story. On the other hand, please read Job. Satan is real. He's been in it right from the beginning. Now, in the New Testament, 19 out of 27 books mention him. Every writer mentions him. Every writer. That's because some writers wrote more than one book, right? So 19 out of the 27 books mention him by one of his names. He's real to the people and Christ mentioned, is responsible for mentioning uh, him 25 out of 29 times in the Gospels. Some of those are overlaps because of parallel Gospels. But his rebellion is made quite clear in Isaiah chapter 14. He says, I will be like God. There are five I wills there. 
Want to know what those I wills mean? Pick up my book called Angels Elect and Evil. Are we having more over there? All the angels gone? I mean the printed ones. We, we've ordered them, okay? They won't get here in time. They're taking orders, okay? So you can sign up for them over there. That book, uh, Angels Elect and Evil, has been a textbook. came out the same year that Mark's book came out, 1975. It's been used in colleges and seminaries, and it's a crossover type book. It's a popular type reading. But it puts together in one volume, Good Angels. The first half of the book, Good Angels. You'll be encouraged. Second half of the book, Evil Angels. You'll be instructed in how to handle it. But in this book, I deal with the five I wills. In Isaiah chapter 14, the last one says, I will be like God. Not being satisfied with the beauty that was given him, he rebelled. I will be like God. He didn't want to be like God in character. He wanted to be like God in control. I will be like El Elyon. He didn't say, uh, like Yahweh, the self-existent God. <laughs> he wasn't dumb. He was uh, full of avarice, full of uh, desire to lift himself, to elevate himself to the place where he was in control. And he didn't want to be co-regent with God. He wanted to be over God. So he wanted to take God's place. And that's what he's been trying to do ever since. Take God's place. He's done pretty well in some people's lives. Jesus said about him in John 8, 44, or about the people who were opposing him, he said to them, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, for he is a liar and he speaks out of his own nature. Satan is a liar. If any of you have ever believed any of his lies, you've been believing a loser, and someone who's been trying to hurt you at every opportunity. If there's someone here who really doesn't know the Lord, and you have come out of curiosity, I'll let you handle your motives, but you really need to learn that you've been believing a lie unless you trusted the Savior who is the truth. The way, the truth, and the life. Satan is the way the lie, and the death. And we need to realize that Jesus is not Satan's brother. He is his creator and his judge, and he's going to send into the lake of fire. And unless we trusted the Savior, we're going to hear the Savior's words, depart me, you wicked, into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus Christ is not a loser. Love is not weak. Love paid our debt. Love rose from the grave. He's alive today and powerful. Far above all principalities and powers, all thrones, dominions which he created. And he is not a loser. He's not in the same category as Satan. Satan is a creature, lost and undone and headed for the lake of fire. His rebellion got him into that. With that, he took a third of the angels. Revelation chapter 12 says, I saw a great red dragon, says John. And this is during the tribulation period, but it shows about um, Satan's previous following. He says, I saw a great red dragon, and with his tail he drew a third of the stars. Now, a tail generally follows, doesn't it? So he's talking about the following. A third of the stars. Stars is a figurative term for angels. They're heavenly creatures. 
just like angels, or creations like angels. And in the context, it says, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels, and the dragon and his angels did not prevail. They were not strong enough, and they were cast down to earth. Even angels can overcome Satan, let alone God. When God allows it, has his timing. Satan's not all that strong. He's too strong for us. We need to depend upon the Lord and the power of his might, but he's no match for the Savior and his angels. The Lord could do it single-handedly, but he lets angels enjoy the victory in the battle. So a third of the angels fell with him, probably some from every rank. Satan's soldiers, they're real. They're called demons. There are more than 100, 100 references in the Bible to demons. Uh, that is in the New Testament. Daimonion is used 63 times. That means a minor deity. And pneumata, which means spirit, 43 times. Spirit without any other uh, adjective describing it. it. Generally refers to angelic type beings. Christ recognized them. Look at Matthew 12. Demons are real. Take a look at Matthew 12, please. Always check up on the preacher. They checked up on the Apostle Paul. Privilege. Okay? All right. Where are we looking? Matthew 12. Here's a case where the Lord Jesus was introduced to a man who was demon-possessed, literally demonized. Possession is a misnomer. Satan owns nothing. God owns him. Same thing with demons. They own nothing. God owns them. So this demon-possessed man was blind and dumb. Hopeless case, right? From birth, right? Not necessarily. Evidently, this spirit caused this blindness and dumbness. There was a functional disturbance, not an organic disturbance here. And he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes that were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Meaning... Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They couldn't deny the miracle, so they denied the source. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and he gives three answers. Satan's not so dumb to be divided against himself. He doesn't cast out demons. Secondly, you have contemporaries who cast out demons. Are you going to say they do the same thing? And by the way, there was a casting out of demons even before Jesus came along in Jehovah's name. True believers in Old Testament sense had power over the enemy. Verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, if this is a genuine miracle done by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. I am the Messiah. Do you notice what he said here? He said here, demons are real, the casting out is real, that means I'm really the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. So he put the factual reality of his identity as the Son of God, Messiah, on the same level as the reality of demons. Not importance, but same level of reality. Jesus, if he's the Son of God and Messiah, there are also demons whom he cast out by the Spirit of God. And this man was really demonized. So demons are real. Jesus said it. He's the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And he's raised from the dead. We ought to believe his words he confronted them and removed them. They have ranks. Demons have ranks. We mentioned this earlier. In 
the organization of angels, we have the Lord God of hosts, or the Lord God of armies. Under that, we have seraphim, cherubim, living ones, like in the book of Revelation. Satan is specifically called a cherub in Ezekiel chapter 28. Michael and his angels fight with Satan and his angels, so I suppose, though it doesn't say that specifically, Michael might also be a cherubim. He is called one of the chief princes. He's the only one called an archangel. Under them, they have thrones, dominions, principalities, authorities, powers, world rulers, and angels. This you can find in my book called Angels Selecting Evil. I'm not going to leave that on the screen so you can copy that. I have to move along. You don't want to stay here all night. They also have a nature that we can understand as spirit beings. Just like angels are spirit beings, are they not all spirits sent forth to minister to those who be, shall be heirs of salvation? He makes his spirit, his uh, uh, spirits servants, or his servants spirits. And uh, Hebrews 1.7 says that. They are persons. Persons don't have necessarily have bodies. God's personal. He doesn't have a body. So the son does, yeah, but he was personal before he became human. And he made angels who can think and feel and choose with God. And that, that moral sphere of uh, personal activity shows they're persons. And demons are that too. They think and feel and choose. They, they can think, oh, I know who you are. You're the son of God. They emote. The demons fear and tremble. They choose. They chose to rebel against him. Throw us into the the pigs, rather into the pit. They have great powers. They can hurt people, just like angels have great powers. Angels' powers are good, and demons are destructive, but they're limited by God, just as we've seen in uh, Job and other places. That We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spirits, against the devil himself, right? Now, the, the uh, enemy has plans. We wrestle against the devil. Would you please notice here? It says in Ephesians chapter 6, we have to put on the full armor of God that we may stand against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word here is methodia, which means well laid out orderly plans. There's another word in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says, receive that man back, forgive him, for we are not ignorant of his Schemes. The word there is noemata, or purposes. His purpose is to divide, to cause bitterness, to enforce lack of forgiveness. He has an overall plan, purpose involved too. And so he works, not helter-skelter, but in a, a very well-laid-out, ordered system. Here's some of the things he does. I'm not going to go into the detail of this very much, except to, to let you know that he's involved. And one of the things that we forget that he's involved in is opposing the matter of evangelism. There are barriers to evangelism. You see, those of us who try to share Christ are in an impossible task. We cannot win people to the Lord. We can't do it. A couple reasons. There is, first of all, a satanic type blindness. The gospel truth cannot be apprehended by the man's mind because there's a satanic blindness. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of those who believe not, and the mind is now out there 50 miles away, but inside the skull. He blinds the minds. 
That means there is an attempt at mind control, and that can be done inside or outside, but it affects the mind. Besides satanic blindness, there's natural blindness. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He won't. He can't. Apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, who says the gospel is true and it applies to you. And so the gospel gets through and the person sees it as true. However, that doesn't guarantee the person's going to receive it. You can... Uh, you can recognize a person, not invite him in. So up to your door comes President-elect Bill. Okay. We talk about George. Let's talk about Bill, all right? So he comes up your door, and you voted against him. And you say, hello, Bill. Close the door. You've recognized him, but you haven't received him. It takes an act of the will and agreement to invite him in. It is more than just knowing Christ is at the door. He says, I have to be invited in. And so the Holy Spirit helps us not only to know the truth, but the Father causes us to trust him. No one can come to me except the Father draw him. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You see, Christ can overcome. Only God can overcome satanic blindness and natural blindness. Satan's delusion, man's deadness. Then there comes spiritual rebirth upon a reception of Christ. And you need to know that, because if you're still without Christ, you need to know the gospel. There are so many things that people do to confuse the gospel. Maybe we ought to clarify that so we don't cloud it. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. And uh, Christ has come as God-man to take care of sin's guilt. The gospel is that God the Creator loves his fallen creation. Sin's guilt is one of the first things we have to understand in the essential content of the gospel. It's not so much uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Though that's so. But it's not so much I've got a great life for you. I want to have you in right standing with me and guilt is a wrong standing. And it's a legal guilt, not a guilt feeling. This is what God says, you're guilty. The whole world stands condemned before God. And the God-man, the Savior become human, as well as remaining God, died in our place, a complete substitute. He bore our sins in full on the tree, and he did the work. He said, it is finished on the cross, and God raised him from the dead to say amen. Now our job is to trust him, not to in any way try to add to the finished work of Christ, but rather to trust him as our personal Savior, to invite him in. And that's the gospel in short form. God, the creator of heaven and earth, has made us responsible to him. We are responsible for our guilt. But the Savior, who loves us, came according to God's plan. I delight to do thy will, O God. He died on the cross for us, rose again, and we need to trust him who has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he will forgive you and give you absolute right standing without any equivocation whatsoever. We can trust him. If we don't, we have to face him. God is a righteous judge. If he spared not his own son, he won't spare the sinners who reject his son. And that goes for Satan, too. We're looking at what Satan does. He also opposes believers' growth. It's a mind-control warfare. There are false teachers. 
and there's direct attack upon our minds. I'm going to run over this in a hurry so we can get on with our, our uh, responsibility this evening. Let me br bring you to the next section here. He not only uh, does that, but he accuses and slanders. He slanders God before men, men before God. Oh, God knows that the moment you eat that, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. God, Elohim, the powerful one. You're going to get secret power. You're going to be a rival of his. You will be like God. I wonder where he ever said that before. He said, I will be like God. And then he comes along and he says, you will be like God. He knew he was a loser. He wanted the whole race a loser. Knowing good and evil, secret wisdom, secret power, secret wisdom. But it doesn't work out because it's all on the creaturely sphere. And it's all the lie. And so he accused God. You can't trust God. You won't really die. God's afraid of your competition. He learned that, didn't he? That's the way he interpreted it anyhow. He attacks confidence and commitment about God. He promotes false religions. All the world religions are anti-God. He tempts to specific sins for the Christian to lie, like Ananias and Sapphira, to sexual sins like idolatry and immorality and, and fornication and fantasy. I found many cases of masturbation connected with people who were also demon-inhabited. I'm not saying all masturbation is demon-inspired, but it's uh, very definitely a distraction from the will of God. It involves fantasy, which Jesus spoke against, and is not a God-given way of release. He tempts us to worldly pursuits, to pleasure, possessions, and pride, to human pride in our, our abilities and our, our resources. He, uh, that's Second Chronicles uh, 21, 1 through 8. And uh, to divisiveness, Second Corinthians 2, lack of unity, lack of forgiveness, to anger, to bitterness. Ephesians chapter 4 says, be angry, but don't sin. You know, there's a place for proper anger. I think there's a place for proper anger at things that are unrighteous, whether to me or to somebody else. But I have the privilege of turning my case over to God. I have the privilege of forgiving those who hurt me. And God expects us to do that. Be angry, but don't sin. How do you sin? Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't let it become festering and bitter so that you're upset and well, how else can I have power over my father who hurt me? I'm going to keep myself separate from him. I'll never talk to him again. I'll show him who's boss, right? Illustration of what it could be. Or that person spoke evil of me. I can't handle it. Let's move on. He tempts us to, by the way, it says in that passage, and don't give place to the devil. Don't give him an opportunity. Compromise with false doctrine, false religion. His schemes, his goals, to overthrow God, to thwart God's plan, and to ruin God's people. That's what he's after. Let's see if we can continue here. With all of that reality, we have to talk about our resources very quickly. Our resource is the power of the Lord. Said it before, we can't do it. Can't do it in our own strength. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. didn't say flop. He said stand. Literally be strengthened in the Lord and the power of his might. There is no higher court, no higher power. And so we're to turn to him. By the way, 
the twelve step program, trust the higher power. You're going to watch that business. There are lots of higher powers out there willing to help you get over your your habits, so they can take over and give you new ones. Well, even pride. The power of the Lord. Then the protection of His armor. My friends, I don't think the armor has been properly understood. Let me give you a little insight, if I may, and what I think the uh, armor is. There's six specific pieces of armor. Three to recognize is our position, and three to take up is our practice. Let me explain that. The full armor of God. There are three pieces that are already on. The reason I say they're already on, would you please notice? Well, you can't. You don't have your Greek New Testament with you, do you? But if you do have your Greek New Testament, it says, having put on the belt of truth. It's in the aorist or completed tense. We are in him who is true. We have put on the truth system. The belt of truth means we're in the truth system. This is what makes everything hang together. It held the man's skirts up, it placed for his belt, it took care of everything, it held him together. Some of those belts are like wrestler's belt. Help the back, so they were strong in the battle. Then we have the breastplate of righteousness. This is not personal righteousness as walking righteousness. This is personal righteousness in the sense of uh, our imputed righteousness from Christ. We have the right standing of Christ. What else do we need in the battle besides the belt of truth? We need absolute righteousness so that when Satan comes along and accuses us, we can say, what's new? I'm a sinner, but I'm in Christ. I have his righteousness. How about you? <laughs> then we have sandals of peace. This has often been understood as the gospel, sharing the gospel. That's not part of the defensive weapon. You know, I play golf. I like to play golf. And I've got some shoes that have spikes in them. Why do they have spikes? So I don't slip. If you don't slip, you can't do the job right. Can you imagine a soldier in the battle slipping, falling, having the enemy's sword at his throat and say, excuse me, I fell down by accident. Please let me up and we'll continue our warfare. That's it. The soldier had hobnailed sandals and they were strapped to his feet so he wouldn't slip in the middle of the battle. What does this mean? We have peace with God or sure standing in the battle. The blood of Christ gives us sure standing. The, the gospel of peace gives us peace in the middle of the battle so we know that when we run into difficulty, God is not against us. We never slip. We know God is for us. Who can be against us? Now there are three pieces to put on. You notice the passage changes. It doesn't say having put on. It says taking up. You notice it changed to a present tense there. You can even see it in English. In addition to all, taking up right now the shield of faith. That's confidence in God that uh, he is true and his word is true. Satan will always play with the word of God. Play with your concept of God. Develop a great concept of God. It's the only thing that will see you through. Then the other part of armor you're supposed to pick up is the helmet of salvation. In First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, it's called the helmet of the hope of salvation. We are certain to be on the winning side. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have the hope of deliverance. Finally, we have the sword of the Spirit. The word there is not logos, which means the message, but rhema, which means the sayings. It's plural. The sayings of the Word of God, which are appropriate, like the Lord Jesus used. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Man does not live by 
bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Fall down and worship me. The Bible says man shouldn't worship anybody but God. I'm God, man. I won't worship. See the answers there? They were very appropriate. Do you know the Bible that well that you can handle your weak points and Satan's attempts to get into your mind? You must know the Word of God. Finally, praying about all at all times. Being alert. Friends, I have heard some inane prayers. God be with them. He's already there. What do you want him to do? Ask me, my child, for something I would like to do. I would love to do it for you if you ever get around to asking me for it. For, excuse me for putting the words in God's mouth, but I, I wonder. I, I, he's more patient than I am, I'm sure. And so he must interpret those prayers properly because there are some protections when people pray like that. But why not say, that missionary out there is battling a witch doctor. Keep those people in health. Protect them from the evil one. Don't let them go down the drain with despair and defeat. Protect them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Open blind eyes to the gospel. Remove Satan's blinding. Convict by the Spirit. Give them fruit for their labor. Keep their children and their family intact. By the way, we send missionaries out to the field with little children who are open to all sorts of influences. And I have met so many missionary kids who come back to the field with demons that have invaded them because parents went out saying, everything's all right, we're Christians, there's no battle going on here, we're automatically protected. Nonsense. There are many warnings in Scripture. And uh, some of the most vulnerable persons in the world are children. And missionaries let their children be taken care of by national babysitters who will put a blessing on them. Pray for your missionaries that they get wise, and for the mission boards and the agencies that send them out that they would train them in spiritual warfare. I'm glad the summer catching on. All right, we have the armor of God. Now, very briefly, let's see if we can finish up here. What are we supposed to do? Our response to warfare. Recognize the enemy's tactics. Again, I remind you what General Douglas MacArthur said. Commander-in-Chief of uh, the Allied Forces in uh, World War II in the Pacific area. The most important thing in warfare is to know the enemy's tactics. We can know our resources, our personnel, and be at the wrong place at the wrong time and not be guarding against his sneak attacks. And the enemy doesn't announce his attacks. He doesn't say, watch out, here I'm coming. He hits us blindside. If it doesn't work one way, he'll use another. If he can't use immorality, he'll use pride. If he can't use inactivity, he'll use overactivity. Anything to distract us from enjoying the Lord and walking with him. He'll distract us as to the way to live the Christian life. He'll get us off on signs and wonders rather than the spirit and the word. Remember Christ's victory. Through death he destroyed him that is ruined, rendered inoperative, him who is the power of death, and delivered those who through fear of death were all their subject we're all the life subject to slavery. Colossians 2.15. He stripped principalities and powers of their weaponry, put them to an open shame. Picture a general taking a city-state, all walled up, opposing the, the uh, attacking army. The attacking army somehow either builds a ramp or scales the walls or tunnels under or does something to break down the defenses, and they walk inside and they strip the defending army of their weapons and armor. They're walking around in their underwear. And then he strips them 
He uh, not only strips them, but he ties them neck to neck, makes them to walk in a parade, shaming them. And behind him walk his soldiers in a train of triumph. Christ has stripped the enemy of weaponry. He has openly put them to disgrace by his death and resurrection. And we walk in the train of his triumph. Don't ever cow tow to Satan. He still goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But we may resist him steadfast in the faith. He has been defeated, so we rely upon Christ's deliverance, and he will help you today. If you ask him for help, he'll give you help. Resist in Christ's authority. Our authority is based upon our union with Christ. Our union with Christ is such, as I explained earlier to the group, that we are in him. The moment we trusted Christ, we were baptized into Christ by the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit is not a subsequent to faith experience. It is an upon faith position. We're baptized into Christ, not into water, into Christ. Into Christ, we died with him. Into Christ, that we rose with him. The little cross is ours and the big cross, the little arrow, ours and the big arrow. And we are seated with him in heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1 says he's seated in heavenly places far above principalities and powers, because God raised him from the dead, exalted him in his right hand, and put everything under his feet. That's resurrection power, exaltation power, subjection power. And we are in him, and we're far above principalities and powers. We need to recognize that. In the future, we're going to reign with him. The little crown within the big crown is ours. And in both ages today and in the age to come when Christ comes, we are far above principalities and powers. That's our position in Christ. We must never forget that or ever think of ourselves apart from Christ. He is nearer than your next breath. He is more intrinsic to your life than your metabolism, your digestive system, your, uh, uh, basically your coronary system, your nervous system, whatever it is. He is the giver of life. And we need to submit to God, resist the devil, that he would flee from us. James 4, 7. Say it with me. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Once again, with confidence, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Where is there a place to fall back? No place. The righteous run into the Lord. He's a strong tower. But we don't stay in the defensive position. We're to attack the sword of the Spirit. All prayer. Let's get with it. The Savior is with us. What we need to do is take him seriously. The battle is real. The resources are real. The question is, are you going to be real in the battle? Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Help us to lay hold upon the truth and the strength and the love and grace of our Savior. Defeat the enemy's purposes against our lives. Help us to be aware of his tactics, to submit to you, to resist the devil actively. We're counting upon your promise that he will flee from us. In Jesus' name, amen.